man stood at the bus stop and waited. He was wearing a full military uniform and had an M16 rifle over his shoulder. His beard was long, and on either side of his face, two dark curly locks of hair hung and caressed his cheeks. On his hands, he won a kippah, a hemispherical traditional Jewish skullcap, often worn by ultra-Orthodox Jewish men to symbolize their religious affiliation. In addition, he had an orange ribbon hanging from one pocket, which implies opposition to the withdrawal from the occupied Palestinian territories in the state of Israel. On the one hand, the young man was not an unusual sight in Israel, where almost one million Orthodox Jews, between 12 and 15 percent of the population, live side by side with modern society. But the man was waiting for a bus heading towards Shefa Amra, a city with an overwhelming majority of Arab inhabitants. When the bus arrived after a few minutes, the driver looked at the man, a little surprised, and asked him if he was sure he was on the right bus. The man nodded and got on board. Not long after, he would be behind one of the worst attacks perpetrated by a Jewish terrorist in recent time, which would end up costing himself and four innocent people their lives. You're listening to Terror Talks, a podcast about some of the most spectacular terrorist attacks in history. My name is Natasha Ingholm, and I'm a journalist and MA in Middle Eastern Studies based in Copenhagen, Denmark. Through my profession and my work, I have dealt with terrorism and radicalization for a long time. In this podcast, I tell stories about terrorist attacks worldwide. I'm trying to understand why and how people become radicalized and what role history plays in their path to terrorism. About people who will sacrifice their own lives or the lives of others for political, economic, religious or social goals. Who was behind it? Who did they want to hit? And why? Before you start listening, I must warn you that the podcast contains descriptions and details that can be violent and are unsuitable for especially small children and people who are affected by hearing about murder and violence. There are countries and societies in the world which, to a greater extent than the Danish and other Western societies, have terror as a condition of life. If you look at the statistics, terrorism, depending on the definition, is more frequent in countries that are already in a civil war-like condition or that have groups of the population in solid opposition to each other. One of these places is Israel, which, since its founding in 1948, has been in more or less constant conflict with the Palestinians. We often hear about Palestinian terrorist attacks, which in the 1970s and 80s were carried out in the form of plane hijackings and bombs on buses. Today, it is a very current conflict between Hamas and the Israeli government, which has developed into a regular war. But occasionally, there are also radicalized Zionists or Jews who attack Palestinian targets and cause death and destructions on a more extensive and smaller scale. Jewish militant extremists had carried out attacks on Arab Palestinians in the past, but they most often targeted Palestinians in the West Bank and not Arabs who were Israeli citizens. 
Today's episode is about one of those attacks, and as a unique twist in the story, it was an attack that backfired and ended up costing the terrorist his life. But we will get back to that. Today we are going back approximately 20 years in history. The year is 2005, on 4th August in Israel. At the beginning of the episode, the young man we met had just entered bus 165 from Haifa to Shefa Amwar in Israel's northern district, approximately 20 kilometers north of Haifa. The day before, he had gotten on the bus at the same time at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and had pretended to have fallen asleep. And the bus closed its doors and set off on its usual route through town. When it arrived in a neighborhood predominantly inhabited by Druze, an Israeli minority who believe in a highly modified version of Islam, he stood up. He walked forward on the bus towards the driver. When the driver opened the front door, the man turned to face him and shot him. The bun ran approximately another 20 meters before it hit a parked car and reached a standstill. He then shot and killed a man right behind the driver, opened fire from his automatic weapon and shot indiscriminately at other passengers on the bus. Two young women fell dead and 21 passengers were injured. One of the passengers, Akim Yanri, hid behind the seats. I thought about everybody who is important to me and who I am important to, and I thought I was a goner. I closed my eyes and heard his footsteps getting closer to me. There was a woman sitting nearby who began screaming and begged him not to do anything to her. And at that moment, I jumped on him and grabbed his gun. The terrorist fired three bullets, but Akim Yanwe, grasping the barrel of the rifle, managed to knock the terrorist to the ground and disarm him. Meanwhile, a large crowd of people had gathered outside the bus, and in the confusion, they mistook the terrorist for Akim Yanwe and attacked him. When the mob realized who the terrorist really was, They attacked him with iron pipes and stones, which they threw at him. When the police arrived at the crime scene, he was tied up with his torso naked, stripped of his weapon and covered in blood. But he was still alive. A small group of policemen tried to prevent the crowd from lynching him, but in vain. Nine of the policemen themselves were injured trying to protect him. When the police finally managed to calm the moods, the terrorist's bloody body was left on the floor. The windows of the bus were broken by stone throwing, the seats covered in bloodstains, and the bus floor covered with stones. The bloody, beating corpse of the terrorist was lying on the floor with a black plastic bag over his head. It took the police four hours to remove his body from the crime scene. Aitan Ohana, one of the policemen who arrived at the crime scene, told the press that he had tried to defend Sada before the lynching. This was a difficult incident. When they arrived, the gunman was lying on the ground, and we did everything to prevent the people around the bus from bursting in and harming him. I estimate that there were hundreds there. We had to run from window to window to move people back from the bus. 
The four innocent victims were the two sisters, Hassad Turki and Dina Turki, who were in their early 20s, and the driver, Michelle Bahus and Nara Hayek, who were all Arab residents of Israel. Hassar and Dina Turki were on their way home from Haifa, where Dina had submitted an application for the teacher training course at the city's college, where Hassar was also studying. The women were the youngest in their family and were described as lively and always in a good mood. The killed bus driver was 56-year-old Christian Michel Bahus, who was a familiar face in Shefraham. He was down to earth, looking after his family and working around the clock to provide for them. He was not interested in politics and often said that he felt protected from attacks as a bus driver. The last of those killed was 52-year-old Nada Hayak, who was unmarried and worked in a supermarket, which was a local gathering place. His sister-in-law said he was known in Shafram because he would not harm a fly. He was killed on his way to the beach in Haifa, right behind his friend, the bus driver Michel Bahus. The wounded were taken to the Rambam Medical Center in Haifa, In the days following the attack, 40,000 people attended a memorial service and burial of the victims. The two sisters were buried in a Muslim cemetery, and the two men were buried in a local Christian cemetery. But who was the young man in the military uniform who had decided to kill four innocent people? The soldier was 19-year-old Eden Natan Sada, who grew up in an Israeli Jewish family in the city of Rishon Lezion in central Israel. His father immigrated from Iran, and his mother was from Yemen. Not much information is available about his upbringing, but his parents described him as a clever and studious boy. There is no indication that he was raised particularly religiously, and from January to June 2005, he served military service in the Israeli army as a private soldier. For unknown reasons, Nathan Seder began to take an interest in the extreme Israeli right wing and became a supporter of the extreme Zionist Kak movement. The Kak movement was a radical, orthodox religious party in Israel founded by Rabbi Mia Kahane in 1971, who also founded the Jewish Defense League. The Kak party developed its ideology, which was dubbed Kahanism. The founder, Mia Kahane, believed that most Arabs living in Israel were enemies of the Jews in Israel, and he advocated the establishment of a Jewish theocratic state, that is, a government based on religion, where non-Jews would not have the right to vote. The party also advocated the deportation of all Palestinians from Israel. The Koch party received 26,000 votes in 1984, giving them one seat in the Israeli parliament, but was spared from re-election. The Koch party became increasingly popular with the population and stood to win 4 to 12 seats in the 1988 elections. Mia Kahane and his people became increasingly violent and were behind several attacks on Christians and Palestinians. 
Both the party and a breakaway party was banned outright in 1994 after supporting a Zionist massacre of 29 Palestinians by a Kak supporter. I have not found any information about when Nathan Seder's sympathies with the Kak movement began to take shape. In addition, several political events took place in the early 2000s, which perhaps helped push Nathan Seder beyond the extreme right wing. In 2003, then-Prime Minister Ariel Sharon presented a plan for a withdrawal from the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip was then located in western Israel, with borders to the Mediterranean and Egypt to the south, and there were 21 Israeli settlements in the area. In 1977, Israel's right wing took power by promising cheaper housing and higher living standards. This was to be done, among other ways, by building on the occupied territories on the West Bank. Ordinary people saw it as an opportunity to get a good and cheap home. But it also helped to create further tensions in the relationship with the Palestinians living there. The withdrawal was adopted by the government in 2004 and approved by the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, in February 2005. The 8,000 Jewish settlers would receive compensation from the government of about $200,000 per family, corresponding to $300,000 today if they agreed to leave their homes before 15 August 2005. After that, they would be forcibly evicted from their homes by the Israeli security forces. The same would later happen to the four Northwest Bank settlements, which together officially constitute the state of Palestine. Perhaps quite naturally, from the point of view of the Jewish settlers, many opposed the withdrawal. This applied both to the settlers themselves, but also to many on the Israeli right wing in particular. For months, Israeli security services warned that as the withdrawal from Gaza and four small northern West Bank settlements approached, desperate extremists would try to sabotage it by attacking Arabs and Israeli forces. One of them was Nathan Seda, who deserted from the army in protest because he refused to participate in evacuating the settlements. Nathan Seda's father said he left the army unit in protest after he was ordered to help prepare the withdrawal and moved to Tapuak, an extremist settlement in the West Bank. According to Matthew Gutman at Jerusalem Post, Kafar Tupac became the unofficial headquarters of the Jewish terrorist group Kahane Chai in 1990. But supporters deny the existence of a Kahane headquarters. In a letter, Nathan Seder told his parents his motives behind the desertion. Just as I couldn't carry out an order that desecrates the Sabbath, I cannot be a part of an organization that expels Jews. He added the slogan used by the movement against Jewish withdrawal from the occupied territories. Jews don't expel Jews. To his letter and ended the message with the words. I will consider how I will continue to serve. His mother later claimed that before the terrorist attack, she alerted the Israeli army and other security services that her son was still in possession of his military weapon. 
We said he had deserted and could find something to do with his weapon. We begged them to take his weapons from him. He asked for the same. The army destroyed my child. Nathan Seder's father said he had been worried that his son's weapons would fall into the hands of fanatics in Tapuak. I wasn't afraid that he would do something. I was afraid of the others, said his father. He also said that he had seen no signs that his son would carry out a terrorist act. I spoke to his son two days ago, and he was a happy and kind-hearted boy. And he told me he would find the time to return the weapon. The family of the two killed women, Dina and Hassar, also believed that the terrorist act could have been prevented if the terrorist forces had taken proper care of the killer. A relative, Nabal Saada, said, Everybody sees how the defense establishment treats the extreme right with kid gloves. We believe that this is not a lone murderer, but behind him is a whole infrastructure that must be dealt with urgently. We are citizens of this country, and we absolutely will not accept this situation. I'm stepping out of the story for a moment to give some background on the Israel-Palestine conflict. Suppose you want some historical experience establishing the state of Israel in 1948. In that case, I recommend you go back to season one and listen to episode five about the attack on the King David Hotel. But right now, I would like to talk a little bit about a term that most listeners may not be familiar with and which we probably don't associate with the state of Israel. That is, Jewish terrorist groups. Often, the conflict between Jews and Palestinians is portrayed very one-sidedly, with the Jewish state of Israel on one side and various Palestinian groups or self-government labeled terrorists on the other. But the realities are far more complex, and I think it's essential to highlight the fact that there are Jewish groups that have both extreme views and, in some cases, also carry out terrorist attacks. One of these groups is the Jewish jihadists who advocate a national religious ultra-Orthodox ideology called Hadal. They are actually against the Israeli government and the state in its current form because they are opposed to the values of a secular Zionist society. An example of a group that advocates Hadal is Leheva, which means the flame. The group leader is one of the previously mentioned Kach movement leader Mir Kahane's disciples. The group wants to prevent Jews from living in coexistence with non-Jews by any means, even violent ones. This applies not only to Muslims, but also to Christians and other religions. Based on the latest figures I could find in 2018, the organization had over 10,000 members. Another group from the same milieu called the Revolt advocates a Jewish theocracy by establishing a Jewish kingdom that follows the Halakha, a unified set of Jewish rules based on the Torah holy book, somewhat similar to Muslim Sharia law. Among other things, the group was behind an attack in 2015 on a Palestinian home. An 18-month-old baby and his parents died here 
when firebombs were thrown at their home. Another Jewish group's more of a grassroots movement is called Hilltop Youth and consists of a growing group of young settlers. They represent what many labels as post-Zionism. They are tired of the Zionist state in its current form and, for example, refuse to serve in the military because they do not want to help destroy settlements. Their activism involves establishing settlements under the cover of night on one of the hilltops on the West Bank's so-called outposts. Here they live spartanly and reject society's material goods with a fundamentalist religion as a central element. And finally, harassment and attacks against Palestinian neighbors are also a frequent part of their activities. The last form of Jewish extremism I want to touch is more of a radical mindset than an actual organization. Dubbed the price tag policy, it is used by extreme and often young Jewish settlers to send a message to the Palestinians that any abuse of Jews has a price. An example of this was when the 16-year-old Palestinian Mohammed Abu Qadir was abducted from his home in East Jerusalem on 2nd July 2014. Hours later, his body was found in a forest in the southern part of the city. He had been burned alive. The perpetrators turned out to be a Jewish man and two minors, and their motive was to avenge the killing of three young Israelis in the West Bank a few weeks before. Killings and reprisals led to military invention by the Israeli state, which claimed more than 2,000 lives. After the lynching of the terrorists, seven of the men who had participated were sentenced to prison terms of between 11 and 24 months by the Haifa District Court. Three defendants were Muslims, three were Druze, and one was Christian. Four of the defendants were found guilty of attempted murder, assault on a police officer, rioting, and interfering with a police investigation. They received prison sentences ranging from 20 months to two years. A fifth defendant was found guilty of all charges except attempted manslaughter and was sentenced to 18 months in prison. A sixth defender facing lesser charges was sentenced to 11 months in jail and the seventh defendant was given eight months of probation. All seven were from Shafram, where the shooting took place. The court justified its decision not to charge them with attempted murder because it was difficult to prove intent in such a complicated situation and that the accused had been uniquely provoked by Sada's heinous and murderous actions. A judge in the Haifa district said that despite the soldiers' actions, democracy could not tolerate vigilant justice and rejected an eye-for-an-eye defense. Sada killed his victims, the judges wrote, simply because they were Arabs. Three young people from Tapuak, aged 15 to 17, were arrested in connection with the deadly attack. The three teenagers were suspected of hosting Nathan Seda, knowing his intentions and withholding evidence, the report said. 
the military commander, Lieutenant General Dan Hallett, stated to Israel Radio that There is no doubt that the unfolding reality, the comments, and the internal debates causes fringe elements to migrate even more toward the fringe. When I make episodes that deal with the conflict between Israel and Palestine, it often feels like history repeats itself before I can tell it. When I started researching this episode, the latest war hadn't started, and suddenly we're back to a situation we've sadly witnessed time and time again. It's important to emphasize that I will not choose a side. I don't want that because the conflict is between two extreme political positions and not between ordinary Palestinians and Jews, who I think basically want to live in peace and end this conflict once and for all. But at the same time, I need to shed light on emotional conflicts in a nuanced way and not just buy into automatic Indians. Unfortunately, history has also shown that there are often extreme forces that will destroy a potential of peace at any cost and preserve the status quo. We saw an example of this with the assassination of the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, who was killed by a Jewish fundamentalist in 1995 who was opposed to the Middle East peace process. But that's another story for another episode. You have listened to Terror Talks, a podcast about terror and radicalization. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Natasha Engholm, while John Lobb voiced the man in the story. Also, a big thank you to consultant and journalist Lars Wilbert, who contributed with sparing and wise thoughts. You will find the episode sources in the show notes where you listen to your podcast. I would also appreciate if you would give the podcast a positive review and rating and tell about it to family and friends who could be interested in listening. Listen to the next episode where I tell a story about a Christian terror group in Africa that was anything but Christian and benevolent. Please also follow Terror Talk social media on Instagram and Facebook where you can see pictures from today's story.